0: Welcome back to The Mammy Show. This is your host, Rohit. Today, we have Anne-Maria, the World Judo Champion, Entrepreneur, and Author. Thank you, Anne-Maria, for getting into the show. Thanks for having me. Would you just like to give a quick intro of yourself, your big story, how you got started, and how everything is going so far, and even in entrepreneurship, your Judo Championship and
1: being as an author, too? When I look at my Wikipedia page, it seems like a lot, right? Like Iron Man. Do you ever see the show Iron Man? And they ask him, without that suit, what would you be? And he says, I don't know, entrepreneur, billionaire, inventor. And (laughs) when I look at my Wikipedia page, I was the first American to win the World Judo Championships. I founded four companies and one nonprofit. I have four kids. One of them is... um, Uh, the first woman to win the UFC championships. They're all really successful. My company, Seven Generation Games, has been killing it in the marketplace, making educational games. So it all looks really impressive, but when you're in the middle of it, it's just Thursday. It's today, I've got to have this meeting and I've got to write this code and I've got to fix this (laughs) thing. Uh, It's short, yeah. I have a PhD, uh, a company, Seven Generation Games. That's my current company. I also teach entrepreneurship at California Indian Nations College. I have a husband, four kids, two chinchillas, and one poodle, is that it?
0: How you got started in the entrepreneurship though, like what motivated you? Like what's the story and what's the thing behind that?
1: Well, it's funny for years, my friends were always telling me, you should go out and start your own business. You don't like to take orders from anybody. You always want things to be your way. You're really smart. You should go out and start your own business. And I said, no, 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 no. I my husband had passed away and I had three small children. And I said, I need security. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, it does, I'm got a stable job as a professor. Yeah. I'm not going to go out and start my own business. That's crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: first of all, I got married again and moved to Southern California. So I had to give up my Tenure jobs professor, and I had been working on the side as consultant, and it had ended up to the point where I was making more money from the consulting, my side job, than I was from uh, working as professor. So I went in, I started uh, my first company, which was doing statistical analysis, customized programming for clients, and I realized something, that you think that when you work for a big company, for example, which I had done a lot of as an engineer, that yeah. you have stability. But the fact is, if the company starts losing money or decides to cut back or go in a different way, they'll cut you out like that. And the last person who knows you're going to lose your job is you. Where if you have your own business, you see how things are going. Exactly. And if you're going to lose your job, the first person who knows is you. You actually have a lot more autonomy, a lot more ability to chart your own course, I think, as an entrepreneur. Now, it's not the way some people seem to think that you can do whatever you want because you have clients, you have to change things to fit what your customers want. But my first time going full-time as an entrepreneur was about 20 plus years ago Uh when I started Work R and R consulting. We had called it that, Rousey and Rousey. Rousey was my late husband's name. And originally, it was just going to be stuff, extra money to pay for trips. And like I said, turns out you can make money writing software, and there's a lot of people that want you to do it. So that's what I did for a long time. Then I had a friend. I went. I had a client that was paying really well. I was writing software for Down. And one day, this friend of mine called me up and he said, I know you. You don't want to spend your life driving up and down four or five and working inside of a box. Let's start a company on mm-hmm. the reservation. I don't know if you're familiar with the U.S. or American Indian reservations, but reservations are a place where basically we forced the indigenous people of the United States to go. And they have their own laws there that are separate from the state laws and so on. So my friend is Native American, he's Dakota, he lived on his reservation. He said, let's start a company. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what would we do? (laughs) He said, I don't know, that's up to you, but there's no employment here. I don't want my children to have to move away from this reservation to use their education, get a job. So we started a company that Spirit Light Consulting that at one point was the largest private employer in the reservation where we made slices of the internet. This is back when not everybody had internet access, right? About half the country had internet access. So we would go to someplace and say, you're the American Diabetes Association. You want people to know about diabetes. Give us permission. We'll put all of your stuff on a CD. We'll go into these places where a lot of people have never even touched a computer, but now they have a computer lab in their library. We'll show them how to use a computer. We'll give them your CD. And we charged, so we got the information for free from the organizations that wanted disseminated. We charged the places where we went in and give the training for the training. And we charged them a little bit for the CD. And mm-hmm. we did that, and made within two years, we'd made a million dollars. But of course the internet got into more and more places. So that market got smaller and smaller. So we yeah. went from doing that to doing online training. And then, I got this idea. I don't know if this is a longer story than you want to hear, but my same partner, we were in Washington, D.C. We analyzed the National Indian Education Study, which is data on all Native Americans, Alaska Native kids in school, and found that the more kids learned about their culture, the worse they did in math,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which surprised me and not my partner. He said, Look, I'm the president of the school board on my reservation. And you look at you, you're good at math, think about this. If you're six hours in the school day, you take an hour out of that school day to learn Dakota language, that's an hour less to learn other things like math. We're driving back to the airport in a cab, and he says, I'm not gonna accept this. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna accept that My children and grandchildren will learn math or learn their culture. You need to come up with something. Got it. And we still joke about, how did this become my responsibility? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I had, had this idea way back when I was in graduate school about using games to teach. But I was in graduate school in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So, yes, a long time ago. You can imagine what computers were like in the 1980s, right? Graphic capabilities were very low. So I had this idea. I did some text-based games where you, you answered questions, computer spit, it, spit out something. But there wasn't much you could do. And I went off and did other things and customized software databases. And now, fast forward, it's the 2000s. Graphic capabilities, computers processing speed is way higher, right? So we loop back to this. We make the first game, Spirit Lake, the game, runs on Mac and Windows, shows that kids who play this game improve their math scores three times as much as the kids who just had the regular math curriculum. And we took off from there. And now we've got I've lost probably 14 games, maybe more, and across the different operating systems, probably 60 different versions of games. And the pandemic was kind of good to us when, it's sad, but true, when all of a sudden schools had to start teaching kids from home, they looked around and said, what is there that kids can use to learn at home that has some data behind it to show it actually works? And we were there. You've been a leader from long, I guess. So what would you like to say, like how leadership works and as a backbone behind each and every startup? I think that's true. I just read something. I I think, I don't remember who said it. It was one of those people like Paul Graham from Microsoft or somebody like that. But anyway, what they said is the most important thing in an enterprise is having an excellent team. If you give a great idea to a mediocre team, you'll get mediocre results. Yeah. If you give a yeah. mediocre idea to a great team, they'll either make it into something great, they'll change it, you'll get great results. I think as the person founding the company, what many people don't realize is how long it takes. I think, funny enough, being a world judo champion and being an entrepreneur had a lot in common. You don't go into the gym three days a week for a year and become the world champion. You don't even go out a hundred percent and do everything you can for a year and become a world champion. It's a long way to the top. And it's the same way getting a PhD. You need to study and go to school for generally at least five years. And I think for most enterprises to be successful, and i'm talking about something like a tech startup or anything that's relatively new maybe if you're going to open up a mcdonald's franchise you can open up in 3 months from now it'll be functioning yeah. but for something new it's going to take usually a year or two or 3 before you can even draw a salary exactly it's you need to be the person that gets paid last Hmm. obvious, obvious. Well, I I think it's obvious, but it's not obvious to other people, some other people. I think it's also a big mistake early on to outsource too many things. I see these people that they're gonna outsource their marketing and they're gonna outsource their development. Well, first of all, if you don't do it yourself, it's gonna cost you money, which I don't know where you're getting. It also means that you don't know it that intimately. Now I'm not the best developer in our country, company, but I'm decent. I mean, I'm good enough that I know if somebody is telling me that it takes 3 months to do something or cost $30,000, if it's reasonable or a complete fraud. I have enough idea of SEO and marketing to know what the results ought to be, what the key performance indicators ought to be if Somebody again, if I'm getting my money's worth or not, mm-hmm. I think that's important to know enough about each part of your company, like a midget. Kid, uh, enough about each part of your company to know if people are doing their job, and also if you're asking things that are
0: unreasonable. You have raised money. What would you like to say? Like, is raising money easy? And what have oh I Oh and, my God! No. And, and, and 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 even and even like what to know before pitching for the first round and so on. Like,
1: well, first of all, every time you read on Twitter these blog posts, I mean, they're not saying it so much now, but earlier, oh, there's no better time to raise money, and there's all kinds of people looking to invest. It's never been easy to raise money. Got it. The only people I know who had an easy time are people from very wealthy families. I, I know this guy, and I actually like him because when I I was talking, his fa- his father's very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And when he was raising money for his first startup, I said, where did you get your investors? And he said, to be truthful, I just went to my dad's rich friends and they each gave me a check. <laughs> now, <laughs> if you are from a very wealthy family and your dad has rich friends, that for them, giving you $100,000 is nothing, then it's easy. But yeah. the vast majority of us, that is not the case. No matter how hard you think it's gonna be, it's gonna be harder. We have raised money in four different ways. We did small business innovation research research grants, we raised about two and a half million from that, we did Kickstarter, we raised a hundred thousand from that. But it's far more valuable than the hundred thousand because it gives you a chance, an excuse to go back to people all the time. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying buy our thing, buy our thing, buy our thing, Yeah. talk to while people tune out your marketing. You could talk about this Kickstarter thing you're doing. And here's a video of what we're making. And it's good for the visibility as well as the money. Then we raised about between four and five hundred thousand in seed rounds. We did two seed rounds. Mm-hmm. And then we currently are doing a crowd equity round, we funded. But that's that's a new thing. So if you go to WeFunder and check seven generation games, we're there. The first one, we were in an accelerator. And for us, being an accelerator was very helpful. I don't think there are as many accelerators now as there were 10 years ago. I think there's been kind of a shakeout in the market. Mm -hmm. But the first funding we got, we got into an accelerator that focused on tech. It was a really good thing for us because first of all, they gave us money. <laughs> so, they us 20,000 right off the bat, but in cash, but they also gave us about 100,000 in perks. I think you have to be careful with these accelerators because they're asking for a First of all, if they're not giving you money, forget them. Yeah. If they don't have enough money to give you money, they don't owe much. There are accelerators out there that ask startups to give them money for their connections and that. If you don't believe in my company enough to give me money, or if you're not well off enough to have money to give, I'm not interested. So first off, they gave us $20,000, but they we were very, very early stage. So they got 6% of the company. But in addition to that 20000 they gave us 100000 in perks. Now, when they're saying they're giving you perks, I think you want to be careful and see if they're real perks or if they're like Groupon coupons, right? I don't know. And for us, that was a good deal because, like you mentioned, Amazon Web Services. Well, we're yep. paying for that, right? So we get an accelerator. We don't have to pay for it. Yep. They paid for an attorney to or they had an attorney that incorporated us as uh, Delaware C-Corp. So we uh-huh. didn't have to pay for that. They had um, a chief financial officer who handled setting up our cap table for the first time So all of that was good. Now, I've seen other accelerators that their perks are things that we would not use, um, you know, bunches of Google ad credits or something like that. So my caution is, if you're giving up a, a share of equity in your company, make sure that whatever those perks are, things that you would actually use. And I think it's not even worth to give the equity of the company in return of perks. Yeah, for us, we did give up a share of the company because like I said, we were very, very early stage. Yeah. So we needed the money and they also were super helpful to us. We had never pitched really before. and We had, but not very much where they really focused on pitching your company and they were pretty critical about you need to know the answers to all these things. But the thing that was good about it is we probably pitched twice a week for 12 weeks at least. And by the end of it, all the questions that investors would ask, we had answers to. Hmm. So Accelerator, not only did they give us money to start, not only to give us the perks to start, but they actually did connect us with investors who invested. We also got money in that round from people we knew, but I'm pretty certain we got more money from them because it went from, oh, I'm putting money into your company because I like you and your friend to I'm putting more money into your company because I really think you're going to make it because you seem to know what you're doing. So the accelerator for us, we did two of them. And they were the second one we did was Startup Chile in Chile. And we were a little later stage then, and they gave money and they didn't take equity. They gave money and perks. And the, what they got out of it was we opened an office in Chile. So it's a it's a, an initiative of the government. I would recommend anybody interested to go to Chile because it's it was just a great experience. If you're interested in getting into the Latin American market, if right. you don't speak Spanish, though, don't believe what they say. You really need to speak Spanish, oh, not perfectly, but uh so we did the accelerators. We did seed round, the seed rounds were, no matter, again, no matter how hard you think it's going to be, our CEO pitched, I don't know how many times. And we did get hundreds of thousands of dollars, but <laughs> you get far, far, far more no's than you get yes's. Yeah. Then we did. The, we, the crowd equity round. Crowd equity and crowdfunding, if you don't, I'm, I'm sure you know, but probably some people listening to it don't know. Crowdfunding, you're backing a product. When we're coming up with a new game, we'll do a Kickstarter campaign maybe, and say, we're thinking of making this game, <clears throat> back us $50 and you can get a t-shirt and early access to the game. Back us $10, you'll just get early access to the game. Back as ten thousand dollars, and you can get to be a character in the game, and so on. In Kickstarter, you're backing a product. In in crowd, in, that's crowdfunding. In mm-hmm. crowd equity, you're backing a company. Mm-hmm. You invest ten thousand dollars, and you get a share of the company. Yeah. Generally, when we do a, a seed round, the minimum invest is ten thousand. With a crowd equity round, the minimum invest is hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's what we're involved in right now. So far, I think we've raised 83000 in it. The round is still open. Both crowd equity and crowdfunding have in common. You need to spend a lot of time on it. First of all, you need to have a network. Need, I think between Maria and I and our company uh, accounts, I'm sure we've got over 100,000 followers, right? Those are people that you're going to go to first. Mm-hmm. And lots of them are not going to invest at all, <laughs> right? <laughs> Most people are far more interested in their own lives than they are, it's just it's just a fact. You need to send out to those people over and over. You need to have a video done. It, it, the more you work you put into it, the more successful it's gonna be. None of these things are easy. The reason we're more bullish about crowd equity, crowdfunding, than say seed rounds is because look at me, I am not uh, a white guy that graduated from Stanford or dropped out of Stanford, right? That's in his twenties. That's sort of the spot that investors are looking at. I am a grandma that runs a tech company. I got it. People people like me don't fit the pattern and we're more likely to get funded through crowd equity or crowdfunding than the typical seed round. Now, I can't whine, we're one of the few Latino owned companies that's raised over a million dollars. Now, where we've raised a cup over 2 million is small business innovation research grants. Again, they're not easy to do. We've gotten more than we've been turned down from those. But to do those, A, you have to be a company in the US. You don't have to be a US citizen, but you have to be a company in the US. And B, you have to have a research component you can't go and say I'm doing market research. So in our case, we're making educational games and the research part of it is to see if kids actually improve their math scores more playing these games than the regular math curriculum. If you have some kind of research component, then you can get funding from the US government. Generally the phase one, which is a prototype sort of proof of concept is about a hundred to $150,000. The phase two, which is you building it out over two years, is generally 600,000 to a million. So, and it's non-dilutive. You don't have to give up any equity in your company. The U.S. government is funding it because they think this may be a public good. You may contribute to the body of knowledge. You may make the the country healthier, safer, whatever. So those are all the ways we've raised money. All of them were hard. have you said,
0: any no to opportunities? Do you have any regrets though?
1: Well, I've said no to a lot of opportunities. And I think I I think it was Seth Godin. He's a guy who writes a lot about marketing. Mm-hmm. And he said, We're socialized, at least in the US, you never give up, you never give up, you never give up. Mm-hmm. And so that's the wrong way to think about it. What you uh-huh. need to learn is to give up on the right things. Yep. For example, we our sweet spot, we do games that are aimed at kids from eight to 14 years of age. The, the primary age market, like four to four to seven or so is very crowded. And yeah. also it's just what we do. Uh, the older market tends to be more specialized. We do kids eight to 14. Well, at one point we thought maybe we should try and get into this smaller, this younger market. People are always asking us, do you have stuff for younger kids? We did one game for, for preschool and kindergarten, and it just didn't bring in that much business. So we dropped it. We started out on Mac and Windows games, but now over the last few years, schools have really migrated to Chromebooks. Chromebooks and iPads, they're less, far less than I, I think 10% of our sales come from Mac and Windows. So even though we had started out games with that were installed on the device, We had to cut our losses. Well, we were losing, but we had we had to shift from that, and instead of trying to keep banging our heads into getting more into the Microsoft market, even Microsoft is going to the cloud. So we had to drop our focus on Windows installs and Mac installs because we're a small company, and you only have so much bandwidth. It's easy to start a startup.
0: What would you like to say, like? what it
1: takes to scale a startup. It takes shifting to some of those things that probably made you leave big companies to begin with. (laughs) When you start, everything can be in your brain, right? I know that we use GitHub. I know that we use Sourcetree and I know uh, that we have a wiki and I know where all these things are, but you need to write all that down. You need to document stuff and you need to have procedures because Once you expand past the founders, that core team and bring in new people, first of all, if your company scaling depends on everybody in the company is excellent, you're gonna fail. There aren't that many excellent people out there and they're probably already got jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) If you have a bunch of money to, to steal them away, you're gonna fail. So you need to start documenting all of the things that you do. Yeah, I think having a company wiki is brilliant. You need to have meetings. When you bring new people in, and most of us hated meetings, we hated being a big company, but when you bring new people in, you have to onboard them. You have to sit down and explain. This is all the things that we all figured out before you got here.
0: Yeah. I think the
1: biggest thing in scaling are figuring out how to bring new people into your organization and make them successful figuring out how to to codify the things that you, the founders did so that other people can follow in that path that you forged. Any best
0: advice, quick advice you have for anyone who is getting into business, even getting into entrepreneurship?
1: I think don't worry too much about failure. Yeah. Often people do, even if you fail, you can always start again. You know, they they don't shoot you. They don't sell your kids. Yeah. So so what? You learn something and you move on. And the fact is, people are often very worried about failure because, oh, what will people think? And I always give the example, my my father, my late father-in-law founded a started a company when he was young, It failed to the point that the family had to move in with his in-laws because my mother-in-law's parents, because they lost all their money, they didn't have a house, they had kids. And then he started over, got another job, did well. His kids went to college. And when he passed away, the thing my husband wanted was the sign that said Demar's TV and radio repair. And he brought it home. And my daughter said, oh, grandpa had a company. That's so cool. She didn't say, oh, he failed. She was impressed that he made the effort. So I think don't let fear of failure stop you. That would be my big advice. And failing fast is the big thing, I guess. You should fail fast and win fast. Right. I completely, you'll never have, you see this in the gaming industry all the time. You'll never have a perfect game, right? And there are people that just keep going and going and fixing this bug and fixing that bug. And my thing is, let's put it up. Let's have some kids play it. If they don't like part of it, let's change that. Yes, exactly. We iterate to perfection, we don't start with perfection. Thanks, Anne-Maria. Thank you so much for getting into the show, I really? guess.
0: Yeah, and we have loved, the. Uh, probably people will love the episode this what? one and listen this much ahead to
1: get inspired of getting started with the startup and so on. Uh-huh. Thanks for being in the show. All right. Tell everybody, check out Seven Generation Games. It's the number seven sevengenerationgames.com.
0: <laughs> All right.